The Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. The views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Welcome to this broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. It is a Friday evening, just a couple of minutes after 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern time as we broadcast to you from the state of North Carolina. Today's date is August the 31st, 2018. So glad that you could join me for this broadcast. Please to Please continue to support the efforts of the North Carolina-based nonprofit Black Talk Media Project, which is providing you with the platform Black Talk Radio Network. We are a non-corporate sponsored radio network, and we rely on our funding from you, the listener. I am very excited tonight. I have an opportunity, something I've never done in my 10 years of broadcasting, But tonight, I had the pleasure of interviewing a family member who has spent some time working in the People's Republic of China, and she will join us tonight during this first half hour of the broadcast to discuss her experience while working there in China. We will touch on issues like Chinese culture, uh, racism, China's increasing presence in Africa. I also understand you have a large presence of Africans in China, but if you have any questions, be sure to get those in. It's also day number 10 of the national prison strikes against slavery 
via the 13th Amendment, which prescribes involuntary servitude and slavery as a punishment for crime by those, quote unquote, duly convicted. Articles are still being published and we'll take a look at some of the news around this historic event in the annals of human rights movements. If we have time, we will also get into some of the news stories of today. There's a couple of um, news stories that I would like to update you on. One that just came out today, real quick, you Colin Kaepernick and his collusion lawsuit against the NFL. The NFL just lost a round in that dispute or that action. Um, they tried to get the arbitrator to dismiss Colin Kaepernick's lawsuit, and the arbitrator said no. He has enough evidence to move forward with the case. So we will update you on some of those details, but we also know Colin isn't the only one who has filed a lawsuit, a collusion lawsuit against the NFL for suppressing his freedom of speech rights. But again, as I was saying earlier on Tando Radio Show, the U.S. government violates rights all the time. They say you have these rights spelled out in the Bill of Rights and elsewhere in the Constitution. But if they're not enforcing those rights, then what good are they? You know, what do you really have rights if nobody's enforcing those rights or if you're unable to enforce the rights yourself? So without further delay, I would like to welcome in my cousin. We will just use her first name and her name is Regina. Um, my early days in Detroit, um, those who have been listening to the broadcast for a while know that I spent much of my childhood in Detroit, Michigan. Um, we left in 1979. My family did, my immediate family. My mom moved me and my sister and brother back down south to where we are from. And so, you know, my cousin, she still lives um, in that area, or she did live in that area. She's in transition right now. And when I found out that she had spent some time in China, I was like, you know what? China keeps coming up in some of the different conversations that we hear on um, Black Talk Radio. And I was like, hey, here's somebody where I can talk I can talk to them and get some firsthand experience. So Black Talk Radio News welcomes in my cousin Regina. Uh, greetings to you this evening, cousin. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks, cuz. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Regina, if you will... Um, just tell the people a little bit about yourself. Give them a short bio, you know, short and, and concise, as much as you would like to share. All right. Uh, uh, Scotty told you a bit about me and that I am basically my hometown is in Detroit, Michigan. I'm in transition now from having come from China. I was teaching English as a second language to um, adults for a training center. And working in China, I had also taught in Costa Rica, in Mongolia, and prior to that, I was teaching at U.S. schools and universities as an English instructor. So I went over to China to continue um, my career as an ESL teacher, and it was a wonderful experience in working again with um, adults. My youngest student was, you know, I had some students in high school who would come but later in like my last year, they were seasoned professionals 
who were executives and owned their own businesses, often did business within the U.S. or around the world. And um, it was based in China, and I saw some wonderful things. I'm, I'm sure that was an interesting experience. You know, I spent about six years in the United States military, and, and through uh, that service, yeah. I was able to visit a few different countries. And it, it is always interesting when you can interact with people who may not have the same view of the world uh, that you do and have different customs and obviously a different culture. Um, I always made it a point wherever I was stationed to always interact with the quote unquote locals as they say, and to get their point of view and, and you know, see where we might see eye to eye on some stuff and where, you know, I might could learn something from them. So um, tra- if you never traveled um, overseas, it, in my experience, it was a great experience. And I agree with you, Scotty, because it's so different when you travel to a place because normally you go to a hotel, um, you're mostly around many tourists unless you get out for a minute and venture to the local neighborhoods. But when you actually live somewhere overseas, it's different. You have a an opportunity to really get to meet local people, especially if you want to, those opportunities are greater to do so. When I was in China, um, I made a point. I would not even necessarily look for apartments that were in expat communities, but communities that were actually within the local communities so I could have those opportunities as well. Now, let's start. You know, I wanted to get into um, Chinese culture or society. You know, we had a conversation uh, in person, me and you, and I thought the conversation was interesting enough that, hey, this is something that I would like to bring to my listeners. So I want to talk about Chinese society, uh, racism, uh, their increasing presence in Africa, and as well as the African presence in China, um, because I never hear anybody talk about that. Um, so the, right. the first thing that I want to get into is something about culture. Now, one of the things you had said to me was, is that the Chinese population is aging. Um, and you were saying because they have access to good health care, you know, that you you have people who are living a very long time, but also in addition to that, just how they don't, now, I don't know. I didn't ask you and you didn't tell me if they even have a, such a thing as an old folks home like we have here in the United right. States where people, you know, um, I do understand the need sometimes based on the medical condition of that of that person or whether or not they need round, you know, around the clock care or if the family is uh, financially able to provide that care in home. But you said a big thing in their culture is that when they retire, they go live with the children. They're not necessarily getting yes. th- thrown in the old folks' home. So could you speak about that? Yes, I can. In fact, it's um, when they get older, their retirement pension is their ability to move in with their children and continue that, their life in that manner. I'm talking doctors and lawyers, working professionals who have had good careers, 
their, again, their retirement pension is um, their ability to go in and extend their life with their family. And it's something that um, is expected. It's something that's very um, acceptable and it's a good thing to them. In fact, they look down on the whole situation of going into some kind of retirement home. So there are some people who are coming up in more modern times and modern ideas and with influences from other places who um, embrace that um, idea of putting their seniors or their parents into homes, but most of them still don't view this as a good thing. They are expected to take care of the family in all manners and in all times. And it's something that gives them a sense of pride as part of their culture. Interesting, interesting. Um, now, I was sitting here thinking about, well, what if you got a big family? Uh, you know, do what do you do? You just get a bigger home or what? But then I'm also thinking, <laughs> you know, they just recently lifted their two-child policy per, per couple policy. Yeah. They And why, why is that? You mentioned um, something about their population changes. So why do you think they lifted that? Well, they listed it because it's already forecasted by the year 2025, they're going to hit a crisis in that they're going to have far more elderly people in which the younger people are going to have to be responsible for. And it's, it's going to be so problematic that they're already putting measures into place as how are they going to handle that? Um, because the older people, they are living and the younger population is decreasing or it has decreased because they had put those laws into place to kind of balance things. Well, now they lifted it because they feel the need to balance it again and to prepare for the fact that they're going to have many elderly people that are going to put an economic strain on the younger generation in the near future. Hmm. Okay. Now, the next thing that I would like, it, it touches upon um, racism, um, but also just in some of the things that we have heard. All right, for example, I just frame it and keep being straight up as my listening audience knows me to be. Um, you had said okay. something to me that really stood stood out to me. And you told me that they have, they there is racism in China but it isn't like what we experience here in the United States. Could, could you explain yes. that? Yes, I can. And, and you know, well, Scotty, before I even explain it, I want to give a short little um, story about when I first went to China, it was, I was there for only a few weeks and I couldn't put my finger on something was different. It was something, I mean, the, it was like the, it was easier to breathe, it was easier to live, it was easier to function, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And one day, it hit me. It was the absism of racism. And when I realized it, I'm like, I don't have to deal day in, day out with those racist um, encounters or things that come up that, is, that, ha that are almost normal that are a normal part of being a black American. They become so normal um, in their subtleties, especially because usually most things aren't very overt, but they, they are just present 
off the time. And when I was in China, when it hit me, I'm like, that doesn't exist. I can walk down the street and sure, people look at my hair, they look at me, I'm larger, I'm darker. Um, but it's because they're unfamiliar. It wasn't because it was something that was disagreeable to them just because I was who I was. It was just something not necessarily disagreeable, but it was just something that was different. So even when I went there the first week, I did encounter um, racism or prejudice in the sense that I was denied. Um, the realtors would work with me to find an apartment, and I was with a company who would set me up for when it, um, in a hotel for a limited amount of time, and from there I was supposed to work with others, get an apartment, and they literally wouldn't work with me. They hung up the phone. Uh, they... Um, called me and said they would meet me and didn't do it and it became problematic and I realized that it did have something to do um, with a prejudice that was occurring to me so I say this to say that happened when I first got there and even so still was not the same day in day out and having to live as a black person in China compared to a black person in America. You know, you said something to me. Um, you had texted me and said you had been listening to some of the programming on our network. Yeah. And you said that it just reminded you of just how unfair was your word that you use, how unfair uh, it is in this country. It is. And the whole reason I had to go to China in the get-go or the other places as well where the opportunities, um, you can be equally as qualified, but for some reason, there's always an excuse. There's always a reason. There's always an oversight of why those opportunities in which you're qualified for shouldn't be made available to you here in the U.S. And it sometimes gets to a point where you have to, you know how we are. We always have to sometimes be 10 times better or at least two times better than things or people that we come up against. And that's a part of racism. And you get so used to dealing with it that you almost forget that's what you're dealing with day in and day out. When you're excelling, sometimes you're competing with someone who's mediocre. And you have to prove yourself that you are actually <laughs> exceptional. Um, and that was part of the reason why I had to find an opportunity that I felt matched my qualifications and my desires and what I wanted to do at this time in my life and my career. Um, it was easier to find that opportunity overseas than it was here. Now, also during our conversation when we were talking about uh, whether racism is prevailing over there um, as it is in these European-dominated countries, white-dominated countries, and the subject came up of dating. Now, you yeah. said that they do not believe in dating uh, people of different nationalities. I don't even know if race is a construct over there, but they do not mm -hmm. believe in what we call over here a race mixing, but it is not the same. Their reasoning is not the same as what we hear from, you know, these white uh, Klan people, neo-Nazis and whatnot. Would you care to elaborate right. on that? Yes. Um, now, in my limited um, experience there and in, in my opinion of what I know, what I, how I saw it was 
they are very, what keeps their, I guess you can even say their country strong is their culture. It's the culture that makes the country. So they are very dependent on having strong families and a strong culture in order for them to have a strong China. So oftentimes intermarriages are not necessarily um, disapproved because it's a matter of race or certain things of that nature, though of course those do exist, but it's more so a matter of when you marry, it is your responsibility to be responsible to your family and to your culture and to your country. So because of that, you don't just marry somebody because you love them or you want to be with them. You marry them with the idea of my family and whom I put together in my family will strengthen my country and contribute to my culture. And oftentimes mixed marriages, um, especially from a foreigner on the outside, um, how are they going to basically contribute China. Now, you also relayed to me that you experienced something that I experienced um, by being in the U.S. military and going overseas, and that is the behavior of white people, particularly, you know, white Americans, since mm-hmm. that was mostly what I was dealing with. And what, what yeah. I would hear is that, you know, the other um, black guys would tell me that, hey, man, these white these white dudes be telling these local women that we grow tails at the midnight. You know, um, mm-hmm. even some of my other cousins, you know, our cousin Billy was in the military. He was stationed in Japan at one time. He told me that's what they would tell the Japanese. When, hey, these black dudes grow tails at the midnight like monkeys and stuff like that. And you said that mm-hmm. you experienced that as well or you observed that as well of white Americans or Europeans going over there and and basically bad mouthing uh, black folks. Yes, for sure. Um, and I will say that I'm glad you said um, white, um, usually from a Western attitude, because it wasn't just Americans. It was Canadian. It was European. Um, so it was Australian. Um, so it was different white, um, or I guess you could say non-black, <laughs> who were basically perpetuating prejudices and um, stereotypes about black people. And a lot of it came from the fact that we haven't necessarily, and when I say we, I mean Westerners or Americans, haven't come to a point to where we have educated ourselves enough to each other um, to where we have agreeable opinions about uh, our biases and our prejudices. So oftentimes, many white people, they have the idea that they're not prejudiced, but they are. And they haven't dealt with their prejudices in ways in which they could enlighten and change some behaviors that actually show prejudice towards black people. So you get these people, and it's usually, to me, they're usually the worst ones because they don't know that they are, and they're not necessarily open to someone saying, hey, what you just did was prejudice. Then they're going to say, hey, you got a problem. You're just sensitive. Something's wrong with you. And it's like, no, you need to realize that that wasn't fair. That was a prejudice action. That was a prejudice remark. 
So oftentimes they go in innocently and they perpetuate their opinions about people of color and especially black people to, to foreigners who have not had the experience in travel or in relationship, whether it's in school or business, um, to different people. And so these people who are particularly, I'm talking about China, so a lot of Chinese people, they develop, when they develop prejudice, they develop it from the opinions of people who come from places where they're living with Blacks, but they still hold prejudice towards us. Uh, Cousin Regina, I think you're being diplomatic in I think you're being (laughs) I I think you're being diplomatic I think many of them know exactly what they're doing and they don't see anything wrong with it because they were raised that way and it's pretty much normalized where they come from and and so I, I don't think it's anything innocent about it um, if you badmouth somebody using stereotypes, I, I believe you know what you're doing. You know. Um, you know what? Now, I will be honest. I was being diplomatic to a large extent, but I will say part of the reason for my diplomacy is because many of them are ignorant of their prejudices. So mm-hmm. the ones who are blatant, um, okay, we know they exist, and that is definitely true. But a lot of them they're almost blatantly ignorant of their prejudice. And I look at it, the reason why I did choose to communicate with you um, with some diplomacy and to your listening audience with some diplomacy is because I kind of took that same attitude when I was in China. Look, I said, look, most prejudice is because of ignorance. And the only way that's going to be dispelled is if you communicate, whether in your actions or in your words, in ways where people can get to hear another side of the story of what's been told. So whether it was to Chinese people or whether it was to Western people, I continuously communicated that either one, your idea about me is wrong, or two, your idea about blacks is wrong. And um, just, this is what it is. I'm not going to continue and act like I'm angry or upset about it because you should be. This is literally your problem, not mine. And I was at a point in my life and in my career where I was seasoned enough to be able to hold that attitude. And that's usually what brings about changes when people have to deal with that. And I can say I was there long enough to where a lot of the um, prejudices that I, that came up that were within um, Chinese people were actually dispelled by the time I left. And I was able to establish relationships and leave impressions about more than just myself but about my culture to where they knew the truth for what it was and then now that leaves those people who were spreading those mistruths and being blatantly prejudiced now you had to deal with someone who now sees that you're being dishonest in your communication where are you coming from what's wrong with you that you feel the need to perpetuate this kind of nasty behavior so you are acting as a counter racist is 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 a term that is used quite often on this this network. You are countering uh racist lies with truth. All right. So yeah. um we do have a caller. I meant to give out the call in number. Please get your questions in quick if you have any. Again, we are speaking with uh my cousin uh Regina. 
uh, who hails by way of Detroit, who spent some time living and working in China. We have a caller from, it looks like, the Mississippi area, area code 662. You have unmuted yourself. Your mic is open. Uh, give us your name and go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, this is Tommy calling out of Mississippi. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, I, I would Hi. like to comment on everything that was said to some degree because I hear the dealing with it, but I hear somewhat of an excuse being made because China's change, Oriental people have not just started dealing with us as black people. They've been very much aware of it. And this is not something that because the uh, the western part of the United States or there, the Europeans been invading and and and, and uh, uh, imposing their ideas and thoughts upon them for a long time, and that's why they became a close society for quite a long time. Yes, for whatever have. reason, big pardon. Yes, you're right. Yes, and so so they was very much aware of the. Um, of the difference in cultures and nationalities and for whatever reason they isolated themselves but prejudices do exist among them now from what I have seen from the little bit that I have learned and came to understand by aging and um, just living that each society each culture or nationality whatever way you want to label it have a certain amount of different prejudice or racism, whatever, but what I have gathered in the America uh, uh, land, that America has perfected this thing beyond what the British did, beyond what the uh, what the uh, Romans did. Now, there's always been this type of thing, and I don't think it'll never go away. Hmm. And I think sometimes we can be among this thing, and I, as our friends, no matter what their color may be, we are learned to mm -hmm. accept certain things they say, and we are tolerated. But it's always been among us, and it will continue to be among us. So to say that the Chinese is limited in their prejudice, I think that's sort of making excuses for them. And I'll mute myself. Thank y'all for listening. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, Thank you for your I comment. Is it okay if I made a comment, Scotty? Uh, sure, but let me say this first. I don't think that the caller said anything different than you said. I don't, you said that racism do exist, just not to the degree that we see it here in the United States, which the caller just stated that, you know, here they have perfected this thing. Um, so please go ahead, respond. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I think one is um, we have to, again, I think the only way that um, racism, because there are different prejudices, if anything, the Chinese deal more with nationalism, their prejudice about their nationalistic and, you know, superior <laughs> ways of being a nation, maybe, but not necessarily in race. And when we say Chinese, how many people differentiate? And I'm saying how many black people differentiate Chinese people? I mean, you have Chinese working class. You have Chinese upper class. You have the differences between Chinese people as much as you do differences between white people, differences between black people. 
And what prejudice does, especially racism, it doesn't look at you as an individual. It doesn't look at you for your particular merits and those things that are different about you. It groups you with everybody else. So all black people are the same. And that's how prejudice exists. So we all know that there are some black people who are very difficult, who are dangerous. But if you put every black person in that um, category, then it's all of us. And it's the same thing with Chinese. We have to be careful of our own prejudices towards other people to even assume that a whole race of people are all the same. That's when I say, yes, racism exists um, or prejudices exist within the Chinese culture. But overall, part of the reason they shut themselves out is because they wanted to preserve their culture. You really look at the root of what the culture and what they are and the principles in which they are building their, their country it's not necessarily like us on freedom of speech and freedom of this and freedom of that. It's all on the foundation of the individual and in the, um, principles of the individual rising to a certain level of um, human, being humane, of, of uh, being liberal, of being just, of being fair, of being honest. Those are in the principles in which the elite Chinese push for, and that's what they're pushing for in their whole culture. Now, of course, all Chinese don't represent that, but you have to respect the differences within them and then how they deal with being confronted with racism or problems that may be different than someone who's just bottom line racist um, ideas about their race and color and all that as opposed to a culture that's coming from a completely different place. Okay. Um, I think the caller wants to do follow-up. Caller, if you would, real quick, because we have limited time with Thank Regina, you. and I want to uh, cover some other areas. But also on the tail end of what she just said, one of the things she said to me, because I, you know, just the other day, I was one of the YouTube channels that I follow, um, we keep hearing these stories about, Asians, and again, you what what Asians are you talking about? Are you talking about Koreans? Are you talking about Chinese? Are you talking about Japanese? Are you talking about Indonesians? They're Vietnamese, uh, Thai, Thai, uh, Taiwan, uh, Thailand. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. different cultures all swept under the label of Asian, but we have seen some difficulties arise, some outright hostilities uh, play out here in the United States when it comes to those who run these uh, beauty stores and charges that they're misrepresenting uh, black people and what have you. And one of the things that stood out to me that you said, Regina, was that don't judge, uh, don't judge the Chinese by what you see going on here in America with those particular Asians working in those stores. Uh, Caller, did you um, have a follow-up? Thank you, thank you, yes. Yes, and and that's not the impression that I intended to give, that I was lumping everyone together, and I apologize if that's the way it came off, but all I was trying to say is, based on what, what your cousin had spoke on, that isn't that why all prejudice starts? 
is trying to preserve your cultural. It's, I mean, I mean, think about that. And I'm gonna mute myself after this, but that's the whole idea of where it starts. Like I said earlier, the Oriental people, and I specifically because you had experience with China, why I specifically spoke on that. Um, they was isolated for years after they kicked the Brits out. And they gave them that one little place that they're having a problem with right now. But, um, and then they decided to let the Europeans in and other cultures. But isn't that why it starts and how it starts trying to preserve? I, a, I have a question. Pure and clean, and I'll mute myself. Thank you. I'll no, no. Hold, wait a minute, caller. Don't thank mute yourself. You. And I thank you for raising these interesting points. Real talk. We want to have real talk on here. Um, but. Isn't don't we see an element of that even within the African diaspora, um, particularly here Absolutely. in America, with Black nationalists um, who want Absolutely. to? Go ahead. Did Absolutely. you want to respond? Yes. 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 That's, that's, I was just had a question to ask. You know, food for thought. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thank you, uh, Regina. Right. Did you want to do any follow up? Yes, um, Scotty, I think that caller made a very good point, and I appreciate the apology, and I feel I should give an apology as well if perhaps I answered in a way that either showed that I misunderstood or I wasn't being sensitive to the good point that he was making. Um, I will just make one comment, and that is because I have, um, I'm educated in literature and I have been teaching language for a number of years, and I have been teaching abroad for a few years, others in China as well. And I strongly believe that a culture is very important and you don't lose your culture. I would literally go into classes and teach my students that when you're learning this other language, you don't become assimilated into this new language. You think your thoughts from your culture and from where you're coming from, you just use the language in order to communicate your ideas. And I really think that's where the absence of prejudice comes from, is when you're confident and knowledgeable enough about yourself to where you can give that freedom to other people. As you treat people who are insecure, don't really know who they are yet, mm. who are still making a big fight and a big noise about, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that. Well, if you know that's what you are, wonderful. You can be more free and liberal to let other people be the way they are as well. So I think the stronger a person has a relationship with their culture and the knowledge and appreciation of it, then they're more capable of extending that same freedom to other people. Um, on, on the topic of different cultures meeting or people of different nationalities, different race meeting, um, I had actually educated you on the fact that a native North Carolinian by the name of Robert F. Williams, known for Negroes with Guns, he was a NAACP chapter president in Monroe, North Carolina, which is on the other side of Charlotte. Uh, he started okay. the Black Guard, which was an armed self-defense uh, community made up of the community members protecting themselves uh, in the 1950s and 60s by way of arms against the Klan and how they set Robert Williams up uh, to, on a kidnapping charge when he was simply trying to uh, uh, protect these white people who had strolled into the community by accident 
or so and tensions were high and he knew that if the crowd got to them and murdered them that that or killed them um that the national guard all the police everybody's gonna come in and destroy this community so he got them out of the community to save the community and then the state of North Carolina trumped up some kidnapping charges on him to where him and his family had to flee. And he was given a political asylum in Cuba where he broadcast Radio Free Dixie, uh, which was an inspiration for Black Talk Radio as well. Um, but later was given sanctuary in China as well. Then we, when we look at the... Uh, uh, political philosophy of the Black Panther Party. We know that was based on the teachings um, or Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. So yes, there there has been um, the Black community here as well as, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say the regular Chinese, but party leadership in China has made connections with the struggle, the Black American struggle here. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things Good you point. told told me about party leadership, when I asked you, okay, I was like, what if there's a dispute between a Chinese person and yourself or, or someone in your similar uh, position? Human nature tends to suggest that I'm a side with the person that looks like me. But you, you, yes. you, said, <laughs> you said that's not so with party leadership over there. Could you expound on that? Well, I wouldn't say this in general. I think that my experience was somewhat a little unique in some ways. Okay. I will be willing to say that because, Scotty, you know me as your cuz. Um, I'm very confrontational about things. I'm not one who's going to say, like, oh, you really didn't do it. If I'm in a situation, if it's business or if it's something that I'm dealing with, if you're trying to slide this contract from under me because you're being unfair – I am going to confront you about it in some way or another. Um, so I often had to confront different things while I was in China. And for me, they, um, they didn't become problematic because, one, I, I wasn't just venting or voicing opinion. I Usually, I have my research, I have my reasons, I go by things that are reasonable, things that are just, and I knew eventually that if you're, if you're on the up and up, then if I tell you something that's unfair, all you have to do is look into it. If it's unfair and you choose to side with someone who's unfair, then that's just where you're coming from. But it's not because you're not going to be able to take that position because I didn't bring it to you. So oftentimes, I would bring things to the table or to someone's attention uh, and it would get to a point where that first, <laughs> I guess you could say that first instinct, we stick with our own. We're going to stick with Chinese. We're going to stick with this person or we're going to stick with that person. They have a higher position with, than you. They have been here longer than you if they weren't Chinese. Or if they're Chinese, it didn't matter who they were. We're going to stick with Chinese. But because I would not relinquish on some things because it just wasn't right or didn't need to be that way, then it came to the point where, okay, we're going to have to listen to this. And once it was listened to, um, I found that there seemed to be a higher voice of, of people whom I expressed my concerns to 
and literally on every occasion they were resolved to what was right not a matter of well you're american you know this this shouldn't go or whatever um it was a matter of look she made a good point this was a little off this is the way it needs to be and i'm not necessarily saying that that's how it was handled with many different people or blacks or foreigners in china but i will say that that's one way i had good fortune and that i did often bring things up and when i did if it was the right thing they tended to lean towards doing the right thing no matter who it was so oftentimes things worked in my favor more so than a chinese person necessarily that opposed me You know, cause I think that's a read thing that confrontational, not yes. willing to let stuff slide, <laughs> and you know, you're not about to get away Righteous with this. Indignation. Yeah, I, I think that's a read thing. So, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, now I had asked you what were your thoughts, cause we hear a lot of stories about well, China's really making moves all over the planet. I was yes. just reading the other day about their investments in South. South America, um, but we have long been hearing stories about China making moves in Africa, and I made the statement that you know I really don't know what to say because I'm over here, I'm not over there, I'm not a party to this or that. All I can go by is what I'm reading, um, and most of the my sources of information were African sources and. My African sources, whether it was through their media, um, online media, whether it was a news channel, whether it was um, an African um, a publication online, they did not seem to express that they felt like they were being exploited. Um, and I made the distinction that I don't. To me, it doesn't appear that they're practicing that European imperialism, that American imperialism, that colonialism, it doesn't appear to me that they're trying to colonize Africa, but that they need resources and they're going to Africa to get those resources. And you had said to me that there's some exploitation going on, if you would care to explain. Okay, I'll give you an example. Um, the Lunar New Year is the biggest holiday um, in all of China, and for most Chinese people, whether they wherever they are in the world, and CCTV is the most widely watched lot program in all of China. CCTV on the Lunar New Year of just this year, so we're talking February of this year, 2018. They had their live broadcast of their New Year's gala, and it was meant to,、um, I guess you can say, accentuate their African ties. But they had blackface, they had、um, the monkey, and they had the woman,、um, the African woman with a real big behind going around, and they got such. Critical responses from that show. It was aired all over. People from around the world were commenting, "How in the world do they think that that's acceptable in this day and time?" Now, the whole time this broadcast is happening, it wasn't just the Chinese people who put it together. They were hand in hand with the African putting on the show. So, if you like, go and watch the CCTV New Year's、um, New Year's Gala in China. You will see. 
um, what happened in the Chinese, the African people didn't think it was offensive at all. So I think we're still dealing with many um, people who are within different places within Africa who have maybe a colonized mindset. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's too strong. But um, they have a mindset of the Chinese coming in and they're helping them. They're teaching them their languages. They're um, investing. They're providing business opportunities. They don't see anything wrong with things that happen, even to the extent of when they'll, those stereotypes and those negative images of Africans were aired on around the world, especially on China TV. Interesting. So, so um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, uh, let me pull up my notes here. Uh, I'm sorry, I got a brain fart there. Um, yeah, <laughs> I had asked you, I had said, you know, a lot of Chinese listen to uh, visit our website, you know, because behind the scenes, I could see stuff that people don't see. And you could go and get um, drilled down data on who's visiting the okay. website. And for a number of months, uh, we were trending pretty high in China. Uh, people tuning in mm. or visiting the website or tuning in to the station from China. And you said to me, don't assume that those are Chinese nationals because there is a huge presence of Africans in China. So can you talk about right. the presence of Africans in China? What are Africans doing in China? Yes. Um, the, I was in China almost two years. The first year I was there, I was in the city of Guangzhou, which is the third largest city in China. And it also has the most people of color than any other place in China. And within that place, you have a large population of African people. And they're basically in China either to do business. Um, they do a lot of import-export business uh, in China or they're students at the university. And they're African students who study all over China. They study the Chinese language, or they study computers, or some type of technical um, field, but they're, they're pretty successful in their endeavors, and it's, it's, a, it's an impressive community. I think your words to me were they were highly educated. Yes. Yes, they are. And they they almost, I can see the similarity, I was telling you this too, between them and the Chinese culture, because the Chinese, they really believe in, one, it's so many of them, so they, their competition um, with each other tends to force them to become more educated and exposed to different things. And it's the same with the Africans. They have that similarity in that they're very studious, they're very ambitious, um, they're they're moving along. They're pretty progressive and, you know, successful people. Mm -hmm. now, they speak multiple languages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, they do good business. This is awesome. Now, the last thing that I want to ask you about, and I appreciate you, you know, spending your time um, with us, Thank but you. the last thing that I would like to ask you about is we here in these Western countries, we are uh, propagandized. And again, I don't know what's true, what's not true, because I have never spent any time in China. 
but and everything's being filtered through uh, white dominated media. But China is often portrayed as a very repressive nation. Um, like, you know, you don't have any rights whatsoever. And, you know, they have this large uh, repressive uh, government and throwing people in prison, even though, you know, uh, Louisiana, the state of Louisiana by itself has seven times the prison population that in the entire right. nation of China do, if my information is correct. But what, what is it a repressive society? Well, what's the difference? What's your impression? Well, a little bit, yes, and not just my impression, because some even of the Chinese people whom I met there, they they would even go, wow, they wish they could get Google or they wish they could do different things, and why couldn't they get a YouTube video because those things weren't accessible to them. But on the other hand, I'll say this, I didn't have to deal with hardly any time ever feeling threatened while I was in China. I really felt safe. So a lot of the things that um, they're deprived of, whether it's through the media or whether it's the ability to carry arms or things of that sort, it keeps them safe. You have millions and millions and millions of people in China. When I lived in Guangzhou, which is the third largest city, the population of the people is more than the people in New York City, which is our largest city. So you're talking about 13 million people in this city, or 10 million, or between 10 and 13, who knows. But uh, you had all those people and no violence. So part of the repressive, um, I guess you can say the repressive laws or actions that are taken take certain people's liberties away, it helps them to function as a society where that many people can get along and live their life. Um, so again, from what other people say, yes, some things would be nicer if they could see more people get shot up on TV or, you know, be exposed to all kind of whatever, um, or live and do and say what they want to do, but them being denied those things keeps a sort in order in, in the culture. And that may not be the reason why they do it necessarily, but in my sense, that's what I saw is the government maintains a good control over the population of the people, and the people are able to live a very decent and good life because what is available. And I will say this one more point on that, is that a lot of times, you know, you can't come into China. You have to get a different kind of visa to get in, a visitor's visa or a resident visa or a working visa. There are all these different visas. And you have to go through these background checks and all these different things in order to even be able to be invited to come into their country. And so sometimes when people here, particularly blacks, sometimes we don't get that opportunity to even go there and have that exposure because we eliminate ourselves from not having the ability to pass those qualifications to even get into the country. So. I'm saying this to say it kind of makes sense to be able to live a life to where you can be able to have opportunities to do things that are good. Okay. Um, one thought when on that, um, right now there's a prison strike, which we're going to cover on the other side, and it's protesting mm -hmm. slavery and human trafficking as 
uh, codified in the 13th Amendment. People falsely believe at the American Civil War that slavery was abolished, but that means they haven't read the 13th Amendment or they don't understand the 13th Amendment. And the way that we are profiled, I will have to say, sure, there are those of us who do things um, that aren't socially acceptable and we end up getting in trouble. But a lot of times, though, under the repressive society that we live under, it kind of sometimes forces us into situations um, that we otherwise might not have found ourselves in. Well said. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cousin Regina, uh, it was very, um, it was it was a pleasant experience to interview. You are the first family member I've ever had the occasion to interview. Thanks, Thanks so much. And we have a lot of interesting people in our family. Um, but I, I was very pleased that you could join me tonight and share your experience. Are there any final thoughts about anything that you would like to leave with our listening audience? Hmm. I just want to say thank you. Um, I hope more people will continue to support your program, your broadcast because you offer some good information to everyone. So thank you for allowing me to be that first part of your family who can share um, with you. It's been wonderful. Thanks. Thank you, sister. I mean, thank you, cousin Regina. I'm about to call you sister <laughs> Regina. <laughs> we are. We are almost. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Well, tell everyone I said hello, and I'm sure I'll talk to you again. Okay. See you soon. Thanks. All right. That was my cousin, uh, Regina, who I spent the formative years of my life um, growing up with. Our two families were relatively uh, close there. And at this time, I'm going to take a station identification break, uh, take my music break. And when we come back, we will get into some of the prison strike news again a national strike that was initiated by the prisoners themselves uh, where they issued a a 10-point list of demands, which I think are quite reasonable. And as I discussed on my last program, line up with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, they're not asking for anything unreasonable. They're not asking that prisons be abolished, although we do think that prisons should be replaced with rehabilitation centers where people can get the help and the training and the education uh, so that they can come out and be better equipped to become productive members of the society. But again, everybody that's in there should not even be in there. Okay. Um, but I don't have to educate my listeners on, on why that is. Slavery was never abolished. It's very profitable, has always been a pillar of the economy here in the United States. And they just have not gotten away, uh, done away with it. So we'll bring you some prisoner strike news. And also, if I have time, uh, get into some of the other news stories of the day. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc.
believe people are thinking in terms of, well, they want to brag about being black, which means that they are implying that there's something incorrect about being white, even though these are the creations of the creator. See, and then so everybody gets into this black pride thing or white pride thing, and people immediately start taking sides. It's not about taking sides based on black and white. It's about taking sides based on justice and non-justice. Well, that's what you're really aiming for. Being black doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in justice. And being white doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in justice, except you mean in, you believe in non-justice. And that doesn't make any difference what shade you are or how tall you are or who your cousin was or anything like that or what so-called nationality you have. Like a lot of people say that they pr- take pride in being an Englishman or take pride in being a Frenchman or take pride in being Afrocentric. Well, you're not supposed to be proud of any of those things if you don't believe in justice. Because these words mean nothing. No nationality means anything. And, and waving a flag if you don't believe in not mistreating people. You've got to believe in not mistreating people, and you've got to believe in helping people that need help the most. Otherwise, you don't even have any business breathing. Yo, can I hear this record by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock? Hey, man, you sure you want to hear this, man? You sure about that, man? All right. Right about now, you're about to be possessed by the sounds of MC Raw Face and DJ Easy Rock.
bases. I got the bases in. I'm kind of stingy, that's why I don't want to win. A funky rhyme to a folk or a good friend. But listen up, because I want you to comprehend. Because I'm the leader, the man, superior. I take care of you, and then you get worried. So that's it. My mama not counterfeit. The record sells, which makes this one a hit. It won't hurt to listen to Red Alert. Take off the shirt, make sure I don't hit the dirt. I like the kids, the guys, the girls. I want the duck, because this is raw based world. I'm on a mission, you better just listen. Tell my rhymes, because I'm all about this and cause. Black Talk Radio, your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. And welcome back to Black Talk Radio News. Scotty Reed in on this broadcast. Now, I want to shift gears for a second and move to the prison strike news, the national prison strike news. I continue to be very disappointed with black journalism here in the United States and not giving the national prison strikes, and this is mainly led by black prisoners, although there's other prisoners, but it's main the leadership of this strike. Again, these are prisoners who are also slaves in this system of slavery and human trafficking. The United States never stopped practicing, but the majority of them are, are black. The majority of the victims are black. That's not to minimize or dismiss the suffering of other groups who are also finding themselves in this modern day system of slavery and human trafficking. But you would think if your target demographic for your media publications are black people 
And then you have black people leading a major, a major human rights movement at, at this time. Right now, you would think that you would relate that to your majority black audience, but it's not happening with these mainstream outlets. Um, I can find no excuse for it because when you have non-black outlets, major mainstream outlets that's giving it coverage, I don't, I can't find a logical excuse for these other outlets not to cover it. And as I stated the other day, as I go through their Twitter profiles or whatnot, and I'm finding it's 90% entertainment, 5% sports. And then the rest is other, you know, stories and what have you. Now, I understand that BET stands for Black Entertainment Television, but if you can cover other stuff, why aren't you covering these prison strikes? Now, I have also been going, been, what's the word I can use? Um, and I'm being diplomatic with these people, but I keep nagging these black journalists. Maybe I'll use that word. I keep going after them. I'm nagging them. Hey, you talking about John McCain. What about them prison strikes, though? Hey, you talking about Aretha Franklin's funeral. What about them prison strikes, though? Oh, you talking about Serena Williams' cat suit. What about them prison strikes, though? You talking about Andrew Gilliam, the first black person in Florida to uh, get a major party's nomination to become governor. Well, are you asking him about those prison strikes, though? You know what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about those who may work for um, major publication and and are afraid or whatever excuse they want to make. I mean, if Al Sharpton can cover it on MSNBC, why can't you? But then I'm talking about those who are no longer employed in the mainstream and setting up their own platforms and operating off of YouTube. What about them prison strikes, though? We can talk about everything under the sun except for what's most important, and that's abolishing slavery and human trafficking in this 21st century. I believe I read on Twitter today that today is the anniversary, the 500-year anniversary of Africans being enslaved on the North American continent. We know they reached Brazil before they came here, they reached the other islands in the Caribbean before they got here to this continent. But today marks the 500 year, at, I don't even know if we should call it an anniversary. An anniversary is about something good, right? Like a wedding anniversary or something like that. We ain't talking about nothing good. We're talking about probably the longest running human rights crime in the history of humanity because they've never stopped. And we should, again, use language that reflects that this is an ongoing crime against humanity and not something that's in our past. I keep hearing people talking about um, calling black people the descendants of American slaves and what have you. Well, guess what? Some of these people ain't descendants. They are slaves or former slaves. This ain't about just 
pre-American Civil War slavery. It's about post-American Civil War slavery. A 500-year unbroken chain of putting chains on black folks. The only difference between then and now is that they'll put those chains on some non-black folks too, but their primary target is still black people. So that's why I'm making it my duty that every day I'm on air that I'm going to do my duty as a black journalist and keep reporting on these stories. Now, I posted a lot of news stories today. Um, Actually, let me get there. Let me get off my personal profile in BTR community and let me go to our group profile for abolitionists because I am a modern-day abolitionist. I am part of an abolition movement. Not part of any kind of reform movement. I'm not part of of whatever a, a mass incarceration movement, a mass imprisonment. Mo- no, I'm part of a slavery abolitionist movement. Okay, um, so let me go to the group abolitionists that is in our social media platform, btrcommunity.com, and I'll start there with some stories. Okay, got some good news out of New Jersey. And this is pertaining to private prison contractors. Uh, we have an article from NewJersey.com. Let me just pull that up for you. And this is something we have long been pushing and reporting on, but that's divestment programs. Um, I, I was just reading a story about Bank of America today have has been closing the accounts of legal immigrants or people here on work visas and student visas and and Bank of America asking for documentation that the federal government hasn't even uh, required to approve one legal residence here in the United States. So Bank of America have been closing their accounts, people going to pay their rent and and finding there's no money or their their account has been frozen. credit cards being declined and what have you. And so I'm like, okay, but what about Bank of America? Again, I'm not dismissing those people's concerns, but I'm saying Bank of America is one of the six major banks in this country that makes prisons possible, that makes prison slavery uh, possible and profitable. They profit off of underwriting these prisons. Whether and, And then... I read another article that was talking about, you know, how the banks, whenever a a slave catcher, a judgment has been made against the city because of slave catcher brutality and they have to pay it out and they don't have it in the city coffers to pay it out. Well, they do a bond referendum or whatnot and they borrow the money from the banks and the banks make banks making money off of every element of slavery. And I don't know. I don't think Bank of America was around then, but the GEO, excuse me, not the GEO group, Wells Fargo was founded in the 1850s and definitely was writing insurance policies and and funding uh, the enslavement of people, giving people loans to go buy human beings, giving them loans to improve their plantation operations and, and just profiting all the way around from slavery. So I would just add, hey, that's that's the number one reason why you should be 
divesting as an individual, close those accounts. Close those accounts. Why would you keep your money in a, uh, in a bank that's profiting from human rights crimes? It makes no sense, man. So New Jersey, going back to this divestment program or, or this pro divestment action that just occurred in New Jersey. New Jersey has dumped its small holding. Matter of fact, I said it was NewJersey.com, right? NJ.com. NJ, New Jersey pension fund dumps investment in ICE private prison contractor. I would like to applaud them. I'm going to have to get some applause, special effects, but there you go. I applaud that action. New Jersey has dumped its small holding in a private prison contractor that runs family detention centers amid increased scrutiny of the Trump administration's immigration policy. The $78.6 billion public worker pension fund last week sold its $1.3 million investment in Florida-based Geo Group, one of the U.S. largest private prison contractors. They're the second largest. Um, and um, Wells Fargo, that bank that you should divest your personal account from, it's the second largest investor in the second largest private prison group, G Geo Group, says our division of investment reviewed the investment merits, including consideration of environmental, social, and govern governance issues and consistent with this fiduciary responsibility elected to sell the security and transaction was completed last Thursday. Treasury Department spokesman Jennifer, uh, let me see, Schiotino, or Schiotino said in a statement on Wednesday, the holding was sold on August the 23rd. The move follows a call from the American Federation of Teachers for Public Pension Funds to root out their investments in these companies or, when possible, to use their leverage to demand that they adopt policies to ensure just and humane treatment of detainees, which necessarily includes canceling any contracts with U.S. immigration and custom officials. Again, for those, because I know they out there, for those that think that, hey, why do you care about these immigrants and whatnot? Because, hey, it's slavery and I'm against slavery, okay? And because I understand the wider context of the global operation of slavery and how the United States destabilizes people's countries uh, to put in their puppet dictators, even to the tune of funding death squads, and those people are running for their lives, fleeing for their lives, literally fleeing for their lives and what have you. Uh, so I understand the interconnectedness of a human rights struggle. It's dealing with human beings and, and their rights. Um, so, but these ICE detainees have expressed their solidarity in the wider national prison strike that's ongoing right now, um, which is led primarily by black prisoners. And some of them are even going on hunger strike, I was reading today. Uh, some of the women who have been separated from their children were threatening, if you participate in this national strike, then we won't give you your children back. That's the story I read today. And I probably posted it in an abolitionist. And, and so the women um, are going on hunger strike. 
the system is reacting to this prison strike. It is having an a impact. And so I would say that this is part of that impact. And we have long through New Abolitionist Radio and the Abolitionist Movement called for teachers, these teacher unions, to divest from these prisons. Because that seems like there's a conflict of interest there unless, unless you want to proudly admit you're part of a school-to-prison pipeline. So the American Federation of Teachers for Public Pension Funds have divested themselves of their holdings in the GEO Group. And again, if I had an applause button, I would be pressing it right now. So that's a story you can check out. It's posted for you in Abolitionists. Oh, by the way, again, if you have any questions or comments, um, please give us a call, 704-802-5056. Hit star star to unmute yourself if you have any thoughts about our interview with Cousin Regina or if and what we discussed with her and her experience in China and uh, China's role in Africa and what have you. You can comment on that as well or any of these stories that I'm sharing with you now. Um, just hit star star to unmute yourself. All right, um, what's the next story? Now, here's a story that again we have to be careful of various groups that claim that they're advocating for justice but they're doing but they are actually let's call them agents for the system all right who's misdirecting people and now i've seen some stuff from the marshall project although the new abolitionists radio we haven't shared that many stories from them but here's an interesting article that I found from shadowproof.com. It was written by Kevin uh, Gostola and Brian uh, Sonenstein. It says, Marshall Project's prison strike fact check reveals prejudice. Um, Lewis's article is littered with prejudice and innuendo that cast doubt on the legitimacy and trustworthiness of strikers and their outside supporters. So it goes on to say one of the primary differences between this year's prison strike for basic human rights and dignity and the one that took place in 2016 is the level of media attention it has attracted. Far more journalists are paying attention this year, but rather than examine the message of the strike seriously, several outlets, especially those claiming to specialize in these issues, are more concerned with interrogating the messengers. It is as if the prison strike might be a stunt by conniving prisoners and backed by clueless activists, both which want to see their names splashed all over the internet. A quintessential example of this came from the Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization that was founded by former hedge fund manager Neil Barsky in 2014. The organization prides itself on being a quote-unquote credible and reliable source of information on everything from prisons to police and courts. According to their website, they seek to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. The Marshall Project managed to get out in front of other mainstream reporting on the prison strike, establishing themselves as an expert source for interviews and insights on the action. 
Reporting fellow Nicole Lewis was invited on popular national media platforms to discuss her piece, What's Really Happening with the Prison Strike? But Lewis's article is littered with prejudice and innuendo that cast doubt on the legitimacy and trustworthiness of strikers and their outside supporters. It includes the perspectives of activists but plays into biases against incarcerated people by suggesting they might not be telling the truth about their struggle for human rights. The article from the Marshall Project appears to be a fact check of the prison strike. Quote, some outlets simply reported unchecked information put out by the outside strike organizer, Lewis Rice. But the only unchecked information Lewis seems to highlight is the number of prisons participating. She also does not really specify which outlets publish unchecked information, although New York Magazine is highlighted. Now, IWOC, that's the uh, um, international, um, what is it, incarcerated war workers. I'm sorry, IWOC, I'm messing up your name. I'm getting a brain fart here. But IWOC, I saw a tweet from them today, and they were saying that they may actually be underreporting because it takes days sometimes for information to get on get from the inside to the outside, especially when the prison administrators are trying to prevent that. And so they said that, hey, we're doing our best to report what was accurate. And the numbers may seem underwhelming. Well, that's because we have to verify this uh, so that people don't, I'm paraphrasing what they said, so people don't, you know, accuse us of being an unreliable source or of just put, putting out propaganda. You know, they said that their credibility is very important to them. All right. So, but again, she doesn't, as according to this article, she doesn't name anybody or point out what's the unchecked information other than to talk about how many prisoners are, are participating or how many different prisons are involved in the strike. Goes on to say, outlets in which organizers were quoted are named without directly accusing the outlets of publishing unchecked information. She insinuates that the New York Mag, that New York Magazine published a false estimate of the number of participants in the 2016 strike. She goes on to suggest 2018 strike numbers show the strike will not be more robust than the previous strike, but there is no way she can possibly know how many prisoners are striking currently. Lewis clearly believes organizers are exaggerating the extent of the strike, yet by focusing on this aspect, she ignores the demands and the conditions that fueled the latest round of resistance. She sounds like a pro agent. There, there was, an, um, man, I know Otis had mentioned her in the chat, and I said that I had actually, you know, said something about this woman. It's a white woman who's a former prisoner. She got some kind of fellowship grant to be like, you know, this prison, uh, everything prison writer, you know, as a person who spent time in prison. And she, I think she was also part of one of Al Jazeera's broadcasts. Um, but she tried to say, insinuate that making people work for pennies on the dollar 
or no money at all isn't slavery and it's actually a liberating experience. Okay? There are those people who are putting on these labels of being, you know, maybe slavery abolitionists or whatever title they want to take upon themselves as criminal justice reformists and whatnot. And they are nothing but agents of the state getting paid to muddy the waters on the issues. We, 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 it was a big part of COINTELPRO propaganda in the media. Let me uh, go and take this call. Um, believe that's our caller who joined us during the first hour calling us back. Uh, Eric Cole 662, did you have a question or comment? Yes, uh, somewhat a question and a comment. I apologize if I don't get it all right because there was a lot of information to take in at once for me. But anyway, you mentioned the Marsha project, but you put up several other topics included along with that or was that still included? All that this did all that come from the Marsha project? No, what I'm what I'm going over now comes from shadowproof.com. Uh, uh, I mean, good job, but the Marshall Project, you, you read earlier that where they was kind of downplaying all this, right? N- n- no, the I'm Marshall not. N- what I'm saying is I'm reading from an article that's reporting on the Marshall Project downplaying the strike and, and getting people yeah. to focus on stuff that ain't even really factual or important instead of focusing on the prisoners demands for human rights and an improvement of their condition and and everything they're asking for in the 10 point she's questioning the credibility of the organizers that's what i'm reporting on right now i guess what i'm asking was the marshall project in agreement with the prisoner strike or was they um sort of saying that they was overreacting to it as far as how serious things was in the prisons. That's what I'm asking, I guess. I know it came from the Marshall Project, right? The reason I'm asking all this, Scotty, because when you mentioned the name Marshall, a red flag went up. Because I know uh, uh, during the time of the uh, of the Hebrews or Jews or whatever you want to call them, they wrote this law, and it was called under the Marshall if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but that night Marshall Plan. Found. I think it was the Marshall Plan. Yes, absolutely. So, so when when that came into play with this whole conversation, that just brought up an alarm in my mind. So, I, it's been so long since I really, really been exposed to the information. But I, I know he was put all the laws in to segregate separate to, to, to do all these things to separate these different races of people in Germany during that time. So I, I'm just, I didn't get what part was he playing in this. So that no, it's, it's not that I person. That. Yeah, it's not that person. Um, I mean, this is an interesting question that you bring up. Why did he choose the name Marshall Project, which I can't answer that, but it was founded yeah. It was founded by a Wall Street hedge fund manager by the name of Neil yeah. Barsky in 2014. Okay. Okay, I know he's not in play, but they still using that name under something. And what I'm not getting is that uh, uh, condemning the prison strike or raising it up. That's the question I'm asking. Is it supporting it or condemning it? Sound like they trying okay. to play the middle and downplay it. Okay. Okay, see, see, that's where I'm at with this whole thing because the Marshall Project came in and I'm thinking to myself, it's like bringing Martin Springer into something. 
Hmm. It can't be no good, not for us anyway. That's what I'm I'm looking at now. I'll mute myself. That was just a question. Okay. Well, thank you for the questions. No problem. No problem. That's what we're here for. Um, is to answer questions as best as we can, and if we can't answer them, then, you know, we can go do further study. Um, Otis wants to chime in. Otis, if you could hang on, let me take the quick station identification break, 15 seconds, and then we'll come to you. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA, Inc. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back. Let's go straight to the phone lines. We have abolitionist Otis calling us out of Virginia. Uh, Otis, thanks for calling in. Uh, go ahead with your question and comment. Hey, did you unmute me? Did yes, sir. Me? Hey, good evening, comrade. All I wanted to do is make sure that you stick that link in the chat room because I want to see if it's the same article I shared with Max because I wanted to do some research on them. That lady that you were talking about, remember we were, because we were so taken back by what she said about the forcing to work wasn't a bad thing. Yes, so I yes. Wanted, I wanted to find out what the funding is because I told you what, what I've running into is a common thread in my mind is most of these people like her not to degrade her race or nationality, but I've noticed there's a couple of these white women that are fronting organizations that tend to want to work on creating a revenue stream. An alternative revenue stream like we've talked about. Okay, you have some of these people like the Colt Brothers or Alec who are trying to get in front of this and and then set up companies to where, okay, we'll invest in ankle monitoring. All right, you want to do away with bail? Here's a solution. We'll just throw ankle monitors in. Here's the ankle monitors. So still trying to just, I guess, hedge their profits or their future profits. Is that it, Otis, what we're talking about? Uh, Yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is uh, I, I'm going to stick it in BTR community. I was busy today, but I'm going to stick it in for the night's of with. There's an interesting interview on uh, Democracy Now!, where one of the sisters that is with IWOC kind of brought that that dynamic up, saying that uh, they, they don't support the, the change in California because it sounds good on the surface, but this thing about trying to stop bail Mm-hmm. It's actually a way to force people to stay in jail rather than actually free them. Okay. So, you know, we know the details are important. ACLU dropped out at the last minute because what ended up happening is they draft that bill to actually make sure people wouldn't go to jail. And then the, the uh, politicians did some last minute changes and it, right back to leaving the discretion on the, on the judge to right. basically lock you up if you can't afford to pay to get out. Right, right, right. So I haven't, I've read that article. I I have not had time to drill down into it or get other people's thoughts on it. Um, So I'm pretty much operating from ignorance on that. Um, I posted the article in BTR community and, you know, one of the members has some questions for me. And, you know, we were talking about it in general, but not any specifics for this bill. 
And I was saying, you know, that's something that we long been pushing for is the end of bail, pointing out that the U.S. and Philippines, the only two nations that have a cash bail system and that it is just part of the system of slavery where people are, where the system is profiting. Um, I pointed to the Ferguson, you know, what was going on in Ferguson with them shuffling people between jails. It's all in that Ferguson report produced by the FBI or the Department of Justice. Um, so I just really haven't had time um, to really drill down into it. But um, next week, I'll see if I can bring someone on. Um, you said, you know, you mentioned somebody from IWOC. I'll reach out to them and see if we can get somebody to come on and, you know, help us vet this bill in California. But I, yes, it, but my first reading of it, Otis, my first, okay. I'm sorry, my first reading of it, Otis, was, Hell, they still putting too much power in the hand of the judge. And yeah, and and actually, the what what the ACLU and I walk, I guess some I walk people were involved in this too, of out of California. The initial draft of the bill was was actually exactly what the advocates wanted, but like I said, the trickery was once they told them what they're going to do, they went back and sit down in the state house. And manipulated the wording so right. they're really undoing everything. But that's one of the reasons I brought it up to you because I was trying to remind myself on my notepad to bring that to your attention and see if we can dig into it. Because she was very explicit that uh, that's why she would they withdraw their withdrew their uh, support of that bill. And the ACLU did the very same thing, and that's unusual for the ACLU. Yeah. Um, All right. So we'll try to get someone on next week. Um, we got a guest for New Abolitionist Radio. We got Lee Wood coming on Wednesday night. So I'll try to get someone for BTR News. But thank you for bringing that to my attention. And we know, though, oftentimes a bill will be proposed. Then it goes to a committee. And then they start changing words and attaching stuff. And, and, and it's nothing like what it initially was set out to be. So uh, no surprise there, Otis. No surprise there. Um, the next article I would like to bring to your attention, and this is something I've been doing, and I noticed that another activist through Twitter was tweeting at uh, Cory Booker, uh, tweeting at Kamala Harris, uh, tweeting at a couple of other politicians, and I have been doing the same thing. You know, when John Lewis was talking about that uh, John McCain is a warrior for peace, you know, oh my goodness. But I've been asking him, what about them prison strikes, though? What about them prison strikes? You know, you put, you keep riding off of that image of you getting beat in the head by police as a as a civil rights a marcher back in the 60s, but what have you done for us lately? Except for continue to vote for bills that militarize the police, continue to vote. Um, oh, he also voted, I learned from an article today, he also voted for the, pol the uh, police protection bill. Okay? And of course, he continues to vote for wars and what have you. And like I told that activist, because she was tweeting at John Lewis, I said, John Lewis is not the activist that he used to be. He's part of the system now, and he's a corporatist. And that's just the truth. Y'all can call me mean, but one of the things you can't call me is a liar. Call me whatever you want to call me, but you won't be able to call me a liar. Fact check it. 
All right. So this next article is along those lines from Afropunk.com. Shout out to Afropunk. So there are black outlets that's reporting on this, but it's not the mainstream. It's not the BETs, the essence. And speaking of essence, um, what's her name? Uh, Kirsten West Savali. Y'all might have seen her on mainstream TV, but she had tweeted out on Twitter that she had just gotten a job with Essence Magazine um, to, you know, uh, edit articles and what have you for politics. And so I tweeted at her. I was like, good, maybe you can get them to uh, cover the prison strikes as these other black outlets are seen, not other, but as these black outlets seem to not be interested. And she responded and, and said, yes, hold me accountable. I'm on it. And she starts her first day is September the 10th, the day after the strike. So she could do a post uh, strike analysis or even touch on the issues. But she is the only one that has responded to me. Mr. Ascot, uh, Roland Ascot Martin, man, I, I, I don't know what to think about you, dude. I really don't know what to think about you. Now we, so, um, but there are outlets, what we might call the alternative media or the grassroots media, that is black media that is covering it. And Afropunk is one of those. So this comes to you from Afropunk.com. Why are Democrats silent on the major prison strike happening in the U.S.? August 21st marked the beginning of what is likely the biggest prison strike ever to happen in the United States. Silence from Republicans is expected, but the Democratic establishment has not said a thing after toting their progressiveness in the face of Trump's blatant bigotry. Was that all just performative? In other words, they engaged in a performance arts. Uh, Democrats have always basked in the light of moral superiority when it came to the Trump administration. But what does that actually mean when that doesn't translate indeed? And most importantly, policy. Even as the party's looming presidential primary contenders attempt to position themselves as progressive standard bearers, their unwillingness to back the strike underscores the limits of the party's discourse around criminal justice reform, reported Splinter. Trump has revealed the extent of apathy coursing through the Republican Party, but his actions have also exposed the centrist-leaning, corporate uh, prioritizing political doctrine that serves as the foundation of the Blue Party. Um, they they shared the tweet that shares the prisoner's list of demands. Notable Democrat and Senator Kamala Harris is one figure that has been surprisingly silent considering she has fought the death penalty ruling of a federal judge when she was attorney general and has even written a personal essay for Essence. I just got through mentioning Essence on the growing numbers of female inmates in prisons and how the justice system should move towards rehabilitation instead of quote unquote no, I'm not using the MI term um, rehabilitation instead of slavery. Let's correct our language. It's not mass, you know what. It's slavery. Two, less than 2% of people at any given time are in, of the population is in prison. Um, that is not to minimize the impact of slavery, though. But let's call it what it is. Let's use the most accurate terms. And I say 
of what the 13th Amendment says. It's either involuntary servitude or slavery. It's not that other, those other metaphors. On the other hand, Harris has shown a troubling stance regarding not paroling prisoners early because it decreases prison labor. One of the strike demands is the eradication of forced labor and meager prison wages. Especially pertinent to the strikes was her office contention that California's prisons would lose a vital source of labor if they let some people out early. As a supporter of ICE's existence, Harris is a questionable person to place full support in, but then again, she is just part of a larger base of quiet Democrats. And um, they point out uh, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo, who I was checking out a YouTube report on the debates between him and uh, Cynthia Nixon. I don't know that Cynthia Nixon has said anything about the prison strikes or if that'll come up. Um, one of the persons who have um, brought up the strikes is Alexandria uh, Ocosia. Cortez, the woman who upset an established Democrat who is uh, running for uh, in the District of New York for Congress, she tweeted this, today begins a nationwide prison strike demanding humane conditions and an end of prison slavery. The U.S. incarcerates more than any nation, any other nation in the world. To change, we must acknowledge the direct lineage that mass incarceration has to slavery and Jim Crow. Come on, uh, Miss Ocasio Cortez. There is no direct lineage. It's the same thing. It's a 500 year unbroken institution. They never stop practicing slavery. That's what the 13th Amendment says. That's not what Scotty said. That's not what Otis said. Max didn't make that up like the term mass incarceration was made up. No, we didn't make this up. The 13th Amendment, the the people who authored the 13th Amendment, that's what they said it was. So we appreciate her, though, bringing up the prison strike because that's doing more than many of the other people. Many of them, John Lewis, Dianne Feinstein, even though she ain't in office, Hillary Clinton, Obama ain't said nothing. Michelle Obama telling people to vote, but she ain't saying nothing about the prison strike. And, and the list just goes on and on and on and on. Why? Why is it that although the Democrats are saying they're not going to take corporate money, wink, wink, nod, nod, with their fingers crossed behind their backs, and they don't want to alienate the prison slavery profiteers, therefore they're not going to say nothing about it. Or, or perhaps they don't want the responsibility of acknowledging that they know about it, even though we know they know about it, because once you have information, then you are responsible for that information that you have. And if you're a politician, you are responsible to act on that information. Perhaps that's why they don't want to acknowledge the prison strikes, because the prison strikes is pointing to the 13th Amendment in modern-day slavery and human trafficking. I can think of no other reason why they are quiet. And I'll I'll just leave it there because we're running out of time. But I'll, I will say this. I'll keep repeating what Dr. King says and I, how I keep tweeting at these black journalists and these politicians. There comes a time 
When Silence is Betrayal, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We got to confront these politicians when they out here campaigning, held in town halls or or you in the audience and you have a question, get your language right. Ask them what are they plan to do to end slavery and human trafficking in the United States. Then they're going to be like, slavery and human trafficking, what do you mean? Well, you mean to tell me you running for U.S. Congress or you running for president and you don't know what the Constitution says? I got to educate you on what the 13th Amendment says. So we got to get in these people's faces. We got to make noise. It's the squeaky wheel that gets the oil. Okay? So, check that article out from Afropunk. Uh, let me see. Here is an article I came across today. Let me see. I'll just go through a couple of the headlines since I don't have time to drill down into them. Boston activists rallied to show solidarity with nationwide prison strike. About 150 people rallied outside of Suffolk, Suffolk County Jail Thursday to stand in solidarity with a nationwide prison strike which kicked off earlier in the week. As police stood on the jailhouse steps, batons at the ready, protesters chanted, sang, and donned signs. All right. End slavery. Okay, let's end slavery. Uh, let me see. The viral success of a strike no one can see comes to you from The Atlantic. Oh, that previous article came to you from SpareChangeNews.net. Uh, from The Atlantic, uh, which was founded as an abolitionist paper. And until now, had been missing in action and being a part of the new abolitionist movement. And I still don't want to name them as part of the new abolitionist movement, but they are reporting on the prison strike. Um, it says the viral success of a strike no one can see. Still, the striker strategy designed for the current media moment has proved extraordinarily successful by the measures set by the strikers themselves. Following initial pieces and publications like Shadowproof and the Bay View, mainstream outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NPR started covering the protest. I have to open up this one, y'all, because again, the Atlantic was founded as an abolitionist paper in the 1800s. Um, let me see. Are they focusing on the media? All right. So, yeah, they do get into some of the details of the demands. They do get in some of those details. So that's good. Good to have you back, the Atlantic. It's about time that you return to your abolitionist roots. Hope this won't be the only article. Thank you, uh, Vahini Vira, for publishing this article yesterday, for writing this article. All right. So, again, we got these all these non-black targeted platforms writing about the prison strike, but the majority of the mainstream black platforms, they don't think this is important enough to inform their listeners or their reading audience. All right. Um, I mentioned Colin Kaepernick. This will be my last story. This is some good news on the Colin Kaepernick front uh, as his collusion against the NFL lawsuit moves forward. He got a bit of good news today. So let me find that article. Uh, again, it is posted in on, on my profile 
for uh, BTR News with Scotty Reed in btrcommunity.com. Where is that article? Here we go. What happens next in, this comes to you from sbnation.com. This is a sports outlet. Uh, what happens next in Colin Kaepernick's case against the NFL? A lawyer explains. Thursday's ruling in embattled quarterback Colin Kaepernick's long fight against the NFL to prove he was blackballed has taken a turn in favor of the former 49ers thrower. As SB Nation's Ryan Nanny described in his analysis of the ruling under Article 17, Section 7 of the current collective bargaining agreement, the appointed arbitrator in an anti-collusion matter may determine whether or not the complainant's evidence is sufficient to raise a genuine issue of material fact and dismiss the case if the evidence is insufficient. It has been two years since Kaepernick enacted a radical protest on the sidelines that unraveled the normalcy surrounding NFL's uh, Sundays. Players followed, I would say, and interrupted the ritual, okay, because it's a ritual, uh, players followed with similar fervor, driving to a knee to protest the injustices continuing against people of color. Kaepernick's moment evolved into a movement. The NFL's issue stretched to each American pro league, and after a season in the sun, the Pro Bowl quarterback couldn't find another team willing to pay him. Since then, Kaepernick hired famed California lawyer Mark Garagos to represent him, in a collusion lawsuit that, according to a prominent Los Angeles-based sports and entertainment attorney, uh, Jaya Thomas got a major win on Thursday. Um, so he does an interview. Um, I highlighted something that that was stated. Let me just read that highlighted portion. This is from. This is what she said. It's definitely a win, and they're talking about a win for Kaepernick. In between when he first brought the complaint and now, there's been a deposing of many different people, finding evidence, doing research. There's been a lot of work taking place between now and then. It's definitely a win for him. It definitely proves that he has enough to move forward with the case. I personally think there's a good chance the NFL ends up settling before they go completely forward with this later this year. And article also goes on to mention that this is big news um, pertaining to Eric Reed, no relation that I know of. Eric Reed, um, the 49ers cornerback, top of his game, um, free agent who's also not found the team, not getting phone calls, and he filed a collusion suit. And him and Kaepernick had the same attorney. And the evidence that Kaepernick is uncovering is also applicable to Eric Reed's case. All right, that's it for tonight's broadcast. Again, I want to thank my cousin Regina for sharing her experiences living and working in Africa. I mean, not Africa, China. Um, for those who have never had the opportunity to travel and it's not anything that's our fault, but we have to understand that we're getting a picture of the world that is being skewed. It is being skewed and it is being filtered through the lens of racist white supremacists. Okay? 
people who are anti-communist, um, anti-socialist, just anti-everything, not American. All right. And they'll even be anti-American if you're black or the wrong color. All right. So I thought, I think it's important because this ties to the work that the Black Panther was doing, Black Panthers were doing, that Malcolm X was doing, what I felt like Dr. King was going to do if he hadn't have been assassinated, moving into the area of human rights, is we have to make worldwide alliances. Not necessarily with governments, but with the people. And, you know, that's why I made it a point wherever I went, I was stationed to get to know the local people and learn and listen from them. You know, I actually got kidnapped in Hawaii, even though that's not another country. I was kidnapped by some Hawaiians who educated on my colonial occupier status as a member of the U.S. military and told me their grievances and then let me go. So oftentimes, you know, um, the opinions and thoughts that we have about other people around the world may not be accurate. Sometimes it might be. So it's, it's always best if we can learn more. All right. It's always good to ask questions and learn more. All right. Um, want to thank our caller who called in uh, to comment on our conversation or ask questions surrounding our conversation with with Regina, as well as, you know, on our prison strike news. Shout out to Otis as well. Thank you as always. And I'll just close out by saying it's the weekend and slave catchers usually set up roadblocks on the weekend. People are usually drinking and drugging on the weekend. So be extra careful. You got to be careful all the time behind these enemy lines. But on the weekend with so much alcohol and other stuff involved, be extra careful. All right. We don't want to see you get hurt. We don't want to see you get killed out there. We definitely don't want to see you become a slave in this 21st century. With that said, peace and blessings to all. Be safe out there.